Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined by Eric Trexler. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Carolyn. It's early for you today. Uh, it's still dark out. We were just talking about it being like The Walking Dead. I'm in it. so You're like that. the Army commercial. You'll get more done by 9 o'clock than most people get done all day. Enjoy it. I'm taking a nap after this. But anyway, we digress. Who do we have today? So I'm super excited to have with us today Dr. John Zangardi, president of Red Horse Corporation, former CIO of, are you ready? Give Department it to of us. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Navy, and DOD. We got the man here today, Eric. We do. We do. What so are we going to talk about? Well, good morning, Dr. Zangardi. Good morning, Carolyn. I'm sorry you're up so early. Are you getting enough coffee to keep you happy? Don't I look to look a little amped right now? You look very <laughs> few. So, so um, I, I just want to know, before we reveal the topic, I, I was thinking about this interview last night, and I was like, I wonder what Dr. Zangardi's nickname is. And then I was like, you know what? It's going to be a superhero nickname, and it's going to be Dr. Z. So can I just call you that? You can call me whatever you want. That's fine. My call sign used to be Z-Man, and it was abbreviated over time to Dr. Z. Ooh, where does that come from? I want to tease that one out. Where does that one come from? Okay, it's really simple. You know, when you fly planes, you get a call sign. So I was a Navy uh, flight officer way back when. And pretty much anyone who has a last name that starts with Z ends up with a call sign called Z-Man. And what did you fly? P3s. Nice. See, you're a superhero. I knew it. I knew it, Eric. So, and not only that, but we are here to talk about zero trust. So how perfect is that? Dr. Z is going to talk about zero trust. I'm telling you, Chase Cunningham's got nothing on you because you got the name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hit it. Let's hit it. So um, I want to just jump right in. I mean, you've been CIO. We listed them. I'm not going to list them again. But um, as a CIO, how do you think about zero trust and what are the benefits of zero trust? Yeah, um, zero trust is, is an interesting concept. You know, when you think about trust, you know, what is trust? And if you think about it in economic terms, which we were talking about before this started, you could quantify trust as the perfection. So twist it a little bit. Uh, zero trust is more than a line of defense or a perimeter. You know, the old moat around a castle doesn't work. I mean, there's holes in it. You know, the Maginot line didn't work for the French way back when. So really the case is always verify, never trust. Don't automatically trust anything inside or outside the perimeter. Verify everything before allowing it to connect. So the basis in my view of zero trust is identity. You know, we know from uh, a history of uh, breaches and all that is that one compromised credential could potentially impact millions and cost a lot of money. Trust, verification, continuous evaluation or authentication are just bedrock principles. So when you think about 
the benefits. You know, to me, zero trust, when you look at it as business and security, because though I think business and security benefits are hand in hand, it gives you greater network and enterprise visibility, data protection, support for cloud migration, which is key. So you protect your enterprise data. If you're a business, you protect your customer data. If you're government, you protect the citizen's data better. That means less disruption operations. Think, think about reputation. You know, the OPM breach is still out there and people refer to it. One breach can lead to real harm to your reputation corporately, but it also protects intellectual property, classified information, and the associated financial costs that go with that. The other benefits are visibility into who's accessing the network, what devices, what are the activities of the users, think insider threat. And I also think it will reduce the time to breach detection, which means you're talking about predictive and behavioral analytics. And I think that leads to a better um, uh, implementation or application of security policies for enforcing compliance. And ultimately what every CIO dreams of is reduction in risk. So, so not a passing fad. I don't think it's a passing fad. Yeah. Uh, it's going to take a long time for a lot of government organizations to get there. I mean, if you think of, you know, the problems government has to move in this direction, they're tied to things like technical uh, debt, dealing with legacy. Uh, those things have to be resolved until government gets to a point where those older legacy technical debt that's moved out of the business model for them, it's going to take time to get there. So, so go 10, 15 years when we were talking about cloud and the movement to cloud, and everyone wanted to go really There were so many things that we had to resolve. FedRAMP didn't exist. Impact levels on the DOD side didn't exist. What did it mean for different levels of uh, classified or unclassified uh, information on how it could be stored? What are the right mitigations? All those kinds of things have to be thought through. And, you know, anytime you make a change, it just takes time, if you know what I mean. So, so Eric, go ahead, was just say, you said not a passing fad. I, I've been hearing about zero trust for 10 plus years. <laughs> Yeah, so, I think I think the term was coined in about 2010. Dr. Z-Man, um, how has the pandemic changed things, right? We, so we've had COVID, we've got a rapid move to the cloud, but how has the pandemic changed things for the government as, as it relates to zero trust, in your opinion? I, I think it's an inflection point for the government to begin getting more serious about uh, it. Uh, if you really think about what COVID did is it accelerated the move from working in an office every day, right, where you could define your perimeter more simply to a much more disaggregated or distributed network, right? People are at Starbucks, they're at home, uh, they could be at you know, their aunt's house working for all we know. So you have this very distributed thing. So the context of behavior, date and time and geolocation and devices has changed. I think COVID represents a tremendous inflection point. So if you never trust and you always verify as the bedrock is zero trust, you're rejecting the notion of insiders and outsiders, which I think if you look at someone working from home or Starbucks, it's increased the, the size of the network. So who is inside and outside? Because you have this huge network and think about Internet of Things, this is coming downstream, which is going to be powered by 5G. You've got more devices connecting to the network, creating more endpoints and more vulnerabilities. So 
I believe remote work, increased IoT is going to drive us more to zero trust. I think it's inevitable, uh, but I think it will take time as people begin to think it through. Is it is it possible? I mean, with all the different endpoints and different people accessing using company devices sometimes. So I'm going to cover two different points. So let's first talk about culture. You know, government is notoriously resistant to new ideas. And I'm not implying that they don't want new ideas, but there's a lot of processes and policies, law that can slow things down. But there's other reasons. You know, if, if you move off on a transformational idea, there's loss of control, there's uncertainty or risk. On a large network, for example, DOD has about 4.5 million users. Think of the complexity of that network. It's globally dispersed. It goes to disadvantaged users all over the world. There's an uncertainty or risk there as you begin looking at that and beginning to understand what it is. But I've always believed that change is best delivered incrementally. Now, there are folks out there who will disagree with incremental change, but having worked a lot of big programs in the Department of Defense, you know, the big bang theory of rolling something out usually fails. So, and, and people resist those kinds of changes. So I think the movement to zero trust needs to be conducted in a way that counteracts some of the natural tendencies of government and people in terms of a loss of control or uncertainty or risk. But there's another piece to it. And I kind of hinted to it in the other uh, question. So there isn't a box out there, like if you want to buy a Microsoft Office or something that you can go, I want my box of zero trust and everything you need is in that box that you can just drop on your network and bingo, life is good. I'm simplifying to to a large extent, but, you know, it it won't be that simple to deploy. Um, While I was in DOD, you know, there wasn't really huge discussions about it. There were some initial thoughts with it. When I moved to DHS in around 2018, I started briefing the leadership of the Department of Homeland Security on what Zero Trust was and how we wanted to go about beginning the transition. So in about 2018, I I briefed the Deputies Management Advisory Group on Zero Trust, what it means and how we were going to move out on it. And I assigned my chief technical officer to begin developing a plan that would incrementally look at bringing it into areas that were first simple to deploy in. Right. Because you want to build up confidence that you can deploy it and it shows benefit in terms of protecting your data and the user experience. So there's kind of like two pieces here. There's the cultural piece, but there's also a technical piece where you have to think through your network and plan and make sure that you derive and deliver successful implementations. So with that being said, how did you as a CIO look at partnering with industry? Right. We're not we're not building a zero trust box from scratch, as you say, the government isn't building it. What got your attention? How did you interface with vendors? What was your, you know, bringing this capability, this concept online incrementally, how how did you approach that? Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to mention any vendor names here. No, please don't. Because because there's a lot of great vendors out there. And I want to start with something basic that almost has nothing to do with zero trust. So, you know, when you go in to talk to uh, a government member, you need to do a little research. You know, what are their concern items? Oh, they're calling me in here to talk about zero trust. 
Well, you don't want to go in with a 30-page or 30-page PowerPoint slide deck to, that numbs them into disbelief. I think, you know, going in to talk to the customer involves a little more subtlety. It involves a show, shorter PowerPoint brief that's a little bit more focused on technical that maybe brings a demo that shows something a little bit more concrete. And, and let me put a little meat on this. Whether I was in the Department of Navy, DOD, or over at DHS, I would do trips with my CIOs to visit you know, companies in Silicon Valley, whether it was on cybersecurity or whether it was on artificial intelligence or whether it was on anything, you know, the best briefs were always inclusive of a technical discussion rather than the business development side. In fact, you know, when I would talk to my CIOs, go, what would you like? They would tell me what technologies they would like, but they would say, hey, please make sure that it isn't a business development push, that they come in and they talk through what it is they're delivering. And what's important in that is, you know, you don't want to polish it so much that the, it appears there's, gosh, there's no problems. It's important to talk about the challenges and bring forward, hey, you know, here are the honest things that you will encounter as you do this. I think that's an important consideration when industry comes in and talks to the government. Uh, it's a fortright technical discussion, not powered by PowerPoint. And what about like past reference success stories or reference cases where it, we just did this for, you know, pick pick a large Fortune 50 company. We just did this. This is what we ran into. This, These are the benefits we brought to them. Oh, that, that that's absolutely a fantastic thing. You know, assuming that what you did there uh, is representative in many ways of a government um, deployment. It would be great because that's one of the questions we typically ask. Well, the first question we always ask is, are you FedRAMP certified? And if right. you're not, that's a problem. But number two, if you could tell us where you deployed it, how it was deployed, and what was some of the goods and bads of that uh, customer experiences it was being deployed is, is really, a, it could be a winning story. When you say that you, you would talk to Silicon Valley CIOs. So did you have like regular meetings with them like multiple times a year? So when we went out to Silicon Valley, we, we talked to industry and we were focused on particular technology. So it, it might've been the CTO, it might've been the CIO. In some cases it was either. Uh, but what was important in there was to gather from them what the technology was, the benefits of it, and, and their honest assessment of what they were doing. That was really key. Um, the technical side of it really appealed. Um, I have seen, uh, I've been in meetings where a lot of the CIOs would literally walk out of the room because it was all sales. So where's where's the DOD and DHS focused now? So I've been out of DOD for quite some time, and I'm not completely sure where they are, but I'm assuming they're moving out. Uh, in DHS, I know that uh, Brian Teeple, who was my chief technical officer over there, was leading the charge to develop uh, incremental implementations of zero trust. And we were initially looking at how we can ensure that documents, whether it was a Word document or a PowerPoint document or Excel, could be protected and we could... Um, you know, limit access to it. We can control access to documents. You know, one of the things that people worry about in government is, hey, if we're working on a budget, it's pre-decisional. We want to have the ability to, 
to make sure that it doesn't get leaked and create stories that aren't real. And when I worked in the Navy, we used to put the budget uh, effort, the slide deck that supported it on the zipper net so we could you know, cut that out. If you move to a zero trust environment and you limit people's ability to access those files, you create a very different environment in terms of the user experience. There are more unclassified terminals than there are, for example, zipper net terminals. You know, in the Navy, there's approximately 600,000 unclassed terminals on NMCI. I may have the number off a little bit, and I think it's about 35,000 on CyberNet. Uh, so you get a sense of, you know, how much easier it would be to work in an unclassified environment if you could control how those documents are distributed and controlled. And this gets right back to insider threat, which Zero Trust helps you with, right? Who accessed what? When did they access it? What did they do with it, right? Okay. Outstanding. So- you talk a lot about the data, the data side of the house, protecting the data. How does user behavior risk tie into the adaptive trust architecture, in your opinion? Well, I, I think they're, they're hand in hand. You know, um, one of the things that we need to achieve as we move forward is continuous authentication and understanding where all the users are you accessing devices or where they're accessing data. In other words, we know who's accessed the data and we can trace it back. So if there's a breach, we have a better place to start. This allows a security officer at CISO to be more informed and be able to respond more quickly if there's a breach or a threat. And if you could create a dashboard of where you think there's some risk associated with people accessing things that they typically don't access, you can immediately go and respond to it, begin investigating it and go, oh, okay, well, this is unusual behavior that we're seeing here related to this data or this application, but was it justified? You can start asking those questions and maybe get ahead of things. And I think that's really the key. And and would you expect to see that at the component level, let's say, you know, TSA, or ICE, or would you want it at, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you'd want it at the DHS level, ultimately. So, so as you look at DHS, and if you understand the network, so you would want it in all of the components and at the yeah. DHS HQ. So it would be something, in my view, that would be fully deployed throughout the entire network, HQ and the components. So you have that, uh, similar to CDM, where you have that enterprise dashboard, you can see what's happening in your environment. Yeah, it would be very similar to that. And I think it would be really helpful that if the CISOs are looking, each of the CISOs and the components in HQ are looking at the same dashboard, it would really facilitate, you know, situational awareness and that response time. So then you get into scale issues. How do you, how do you scale? How do you, how do you look at federation of data of information? But but ideally that's a that that similar that, that single common operating picture is what you want. So Eric, you're getting back to some of the difficulties associated with rolling out zero trust in a government environment. Yeah. You know, redesigning, yeah, redesigning the applications, redesigning, you know, how the data stored. I mean, go back to cloud. And I remember some of the initial discussions. Well, we have to do rationalization. No, we just don't want to do a lift and shift. I mean, those are things that we had to work our way through in order to be more effective in moving things, you know, as part of a cloud migration. I think the same thing is going to have to happen on the zero trust piece. So it's, it, I think it will be an incremental build. You won't be able to do that big bang because, well, I know this from DHS, DOD, and Navy. There's a lot of legacy out there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see the Modernization Act helping with that? 
I think any time that money is made available to help organizations modernize, it's uh, it's a valuable tool. You know, we looked very hard at the the, uh, the TMF when we were at DHS, and one of the concerns I had with TMF is the payback period. Right. So if you take the money, you have to pay it back, I think, within five years. Well, one of the problems you encounter in government budgeting is where does the money come back? Well, there's an assumption of savings. And where do most savings come from in IT? Manpower, right? Personnel costs. Okay, those costs become very difficult to capture. It's not a procurement line. It's not a sustainment line. It's a manpower line. So now you have to make the case for capturing those dollars. This is the same thing that happened during the cloud rollout. There was assumptions on, hey, these are the power savings you'll capture because of, hey, you want to make data centers, so therefore you're not using as much power because of HVAC, electrical, all that kind of stuff. And here are the manpower savings. Well, the problem was no one knew what they were. In fact, many buildings weren't even uh, wired. We had right. no sense of how much power was being used because there was no metering. So, so the problem with TMF is, is in the future, after you've deployed this thing, how do you capture those dollars? If you can't capture them as a savings, they become a bill. And a consequence of that bill is a decrement to something else. Yeah, and that's we, a risk that's embedded in TMF. We, we spend a lot of time talking to government and current and former government employees. And it, it's, it's never that there's a lack of desire to modernize or to increase the capabilities of the government. It's, it's always the, how do you do it? How do you recoup costs over here so that you can invest over here? How do you, how do you get legacy applications and systems offline or how do you get new ones online so that you can sunset legacy? It's always, the desire is always there. Oh yeah. I've encountered that consistently. I think people have great intentions it's, it's in the execution. And like I said at the beginning of this conversation, government's complicated. I mean, if, as you think through a government budget and all the pieces that go into making it and figuring out where, where and moving the dollars around to capture savings, it is, uh, it is significant to, to make it work. Now, we've made it work, but you have to be careful that you don't create a future bill that, you know, hey, it's good now, but five years from now, it's not so good. I think a better approach uh, would be a revolving working capital fund where you, you make strategic decisions based upon a working capital fund within each organization and you plow savings back in that. You have, the, have to have the buy-in of the CFO. If you don't have the buy-in of the CFO and other leaders who control the dollars, you will never succeed. You know, you, yeah. say, you say government is complicated. I'm going to go with uh, General McChrystal's government is complex. I mean, you broke my head at 600000 unclassified networks just in the Navy. Is that just, really what you said? Just in the Navy. Users, users. Users, okay, still. And devices, I mean, that's a lot. So Dr. Z, you've talked about our resistance to change. I mean, people just in general, look at, I, I kind of want to go back to the COVID topic for a minute because man, we didn't have a chance to even think about change, right? It just exploded on, on us. I guess I want to go back to how government is handling the remote work part of it. I, I know we talked about that, that they're, we're thinking about it, um, but give me a little bit of rubber meets the road. What are we doing to implement? 
Well, you know, I'll give you the example from DHS. Uh, Joe Harris, who was my uh, operations guy when I was at DHS, and I had a lot of conversations that stemmed from snow events. And if you really think about it, is a snow event all that different from COVID? Well, in one aspect, it, maybe it's a day or two, and COVID's been forever, it seems. But really, it is about people working remotely. Maybe they're not at Starbucks, they're probably mostly at home, but a network has to support that. And one of the decisions we made uh, after a snow event, we need to make our network more robust, that it can handle the capacity associated with a snow event. And, you know, COVID happened after I left DHS, but I believe that because we put in place, you know, those procedures to build capacity for a snow day, they were pretty much well positioned for that. Now there's other pieces that go into that, you know, security and all of that. And I think CDM, continuous diagnostics mitigation is a, a key part of getting those systems out there. But Paul Beckman, when I was at DHS and Alma Cole worked very intently on putting in place an inspection procedure for all our socks so we could standardize how they do things. We were looking at a consistent set of tools that could be deployed across the whole enterprise. Those kinds of actions really facilitated a, a better ability for the DHS network to respond. Now, I'm not saying it was perfect, and I'm sure there are people there who would say, yeah, you could have done more. And that's always the case with any any implementation of IT. You could have done more. Um, but I think, you know, those things positioned us well. And thank God for snow, right? Well, and I, so, I think in defense of DHS, it was a long snow day. In fact, it's still snowing. And it was a global snow day. It snowed everywhere, right? Well, so. I'm what Go I just ahead, heard, Eric, I mean, you know, my pet word, my my uh, my personal quest this year is to understand resiliency. Resilience, and, yes. And I just heard you say that you were building resiliency into the system. Resiliency takes a lot of forms. I mean, you want to, it, resiliency and redundancy are very similar. So we had an outage once at one of our data centers. It was caused by a local exchange carrier. We thought we had redundancy coming out of it, but it turned out as you started tracing the path back through uh, a local exchange carrier in uh, you know the South, it went over one wire and that one wire was cut. We lost it, so it, it didn't matter. The redundancy came out and joined at the local exchange carrier. And when that was busted, we were in trouble. So we had to build in additional redundancy to make sure that that data center never went down if that indeed happened in the future. So it really is, um, to, to get to resiliency, it really requires uh, a lot of thought. It means understanding the architecture and always looking at the architecture to make sure that you haven't lost things as you know it ages. But I think, well, I think there's even more. I mean, looking at how do people work remotely with things like lack of daycare. I mean, we, we experienced a lot here. And I'll, I'll tell you, IT, we, we've talked about this before on the show. IT would have spent years and millions of dollars studying how to do what they just did when COVID hit. They just got sure. it done. Sure. Emergencies is, is always a great prompter of action. Brought the I mean, best out in us. Yeah, it did. And I think Americans traditionally respond very well to crisis, right? We always have, and that's in our history. I think it's in the American blood, you know, to, to lift our heads up and have that stiff upper lip and confront it with adversity. And to help each other. Yeah. You know, we, we helped each other in our personal lives. We helped each other at work. And yeah, we've, we've shown a lot of, of resiliency and compassion 
Yeah, we made it happen. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's part of our character. And I remember growing up, my dad was the last of 11. He passed this year. He almost made it to 100. But I remember wow. his eldest sister, who was much older than him, talking about depression. And one of her jobs was going down to the railroad tracks and picking up pieces of coal that fell off the trains, right, the locomotives, to bring home so they could heat the house, right? That was built into her from a kid. But I think that's, that's part of what America is. It's that resiliency. How do you respond to hardship and keep a positive attitude? So how yeah. are you, Dr. Z? How are you keeping a positive attitude right now? I, I'm eternally an optimist. Uh, you know, some, you know the story. People look at a glass as either half full or half empty. Uh, I, I'm happy. I come to work every day. I think work is uh, one of the best uh, insurers of a happy thing. I mean, if you're not busy, you start thinking about things that you don't need to think about. You start going, God, I'm so unfortunate. So I think it's really critical during COVID that we get our economy back on track and people engage back in the workforce. Because I think when you're working, you're earning money, you're being productive, you're meeting and talking to people, you become a happier, more optimistic individual. Well, you're much more connected to society. There's more than just sitting in your office or your room every day. Yeah, mostly I sit in my basement, Eric. <laughs> and I consider myself fortunate that my wife doesn't move me out to the garage. I can. Oh, we just, Eric, Eric got a network pause there. Yeah, I'm back. All right. Well, you know what, Dr. Z, this has been such a great conversation. So hold, worth hold on, Carolyn. I have uh, oh, one we're question. Not done. Okay. All right. I, I've, I've got to know what it's like when you're flying the Orion at wave top level, about to drop a couple Mark 48s on a sub. Okay, wait, wait. I need to understand what oh. this plane looks like. Are we talking a fighter jet? Are we talking? No, no, no. I need no, a visual. Not, this is not Top Gun. This is... Okay. Uh, Okay. A plane about the size of a 737 with four turboprops. It was designed in the 1950s as a passenger plane called the Lockheed Electra. But as it came out, jet travel was taking off and it didn't survive commercially. So the Navy adapted it for ASW. Uh, so, hey, Eric, to answer your question, 200 feet over a choppy ocean could really shake you up. But uh, I, I flew with the Brits once in a Nimrod, and that's their version of ASW plane's been retired, they will go as low as 50 feet, which I don't really think is a good idea. Carolyn, think hunt, the hunt for Red October, if you read the book or the movie, but- You know anti, I have. Anti-submarine <laughs> warfare, looking for Russian or Chinese or, you know, any subs. Well, I'm just imagining 50 feet above anything. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. it is. 200 feet for P3s. Uh, the other ones is really cool to fly. Look up uh, the Atlantique. It has a glass dome in the front. And when you go flying in that glass dome, you sit in it and uh, it, it feels like you're just floating over the water, flying over it. It's cool. At Atlantique. Okay. Atlantique. I'm that's that's got to be such an, an adrenaline, adrenaline uh, producing event there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Thank you. you. Still Thank fly? you for your time. Oh, nope. I get air sick now. Are you kidding? Yep, I get air sick. Okay. <laughs> Not like where I'm, I'm dying or anything like that, but yeah. I will get, I will get dizzy when I fly in commercial planes. But no, I don't fly anymore. I don't want to. <laughs> there's there's something about home, isn't there? All right. Yes, there well, is. Thank, yes, thank there you is. for keeping us safe. Yes, yep. thank you very much. And thanks for this conversation. Like I was, I was saying, definitely worth 
getting up in the wee hours of the morning while it's still dark out and no zombies have, I'm looking out the window. There's no zombies yet. Carolyn, you should try it. You get a lot done when you get up early. I, I, but 5 a.m. is too early, Eric. It's too early. Every day for me, but anyway, All right, thank you well, for the conversation on Zero yes. Trust. We, we learned a ton today and so did our listeners. We really we appreciate it. Yes, and, and thanks to our listeners. Go smash that like button, give us a review, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 